Make more birdies. A bottle of bourbon, a little glass, and some ice. This is not a tip. This is a prescription. Trust me. Mm. If you don't, you will fall out of balance. Mm. Welcome to Birdies and Bourbon. Sit down and have a sip. Welcome back, everybody, to the Birdies and Bourbon Show. We are extremely excited today to have Mr. Mark Immelman on with us, host of On The Mark Podcast. Mark, thanks so much for coming on. How you doing? I'm great. Please don't call me Mr. When you start talking about Mr., I start looking for my dad. And, and, and I'm, on, <laughs> I'm on the doorstep of 50 years old, so already there's this little thing where it's... I wouldn't call it a crisis, but but there's a thing going on. So let's keep it marked. Okay? Uh, yep, not not a problem there. So uh, I wasn't going to go there, but uh, but you brought it up. So uh, okay. you're you're hitting the five zero pretty soon. Is uh, we got a champions tour uh, coming up in your future? Oh heck no! Um, <laughs> I, I do some of my best work with a microphone in my hand. I I, I still teach a lot of golf. Um, I'm still the uh, golf. Well, director of golf, the golf coach at Columbus State University. So, you know, my mine has always been, you know, I was a good player as a young guy, but there was always this teaching sort of a bent to who I was. And was I good enough to perhaps play on tour? Probably. Um, am I happy that my road forked and went in this direction? Absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, big five zero. I, I think I'm like wine. I'm just maturing and getting even more smooth. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Hey, so uh, before we get started, you want to tell folks uh, where they can find you at? Of course. Uh, well, look, markinelman.com is probably the uh, best way to go. And with my funky accent, that's M-A-R-K-I-M-M-E-L-M-A-N.com. You can find the podcast on the mark there. Uh, you can find all of my Instagram and all of the Twitter stuff and and that's sort of the landing spot. But I'm on social media. There's a Facebook page and the podcast. If you just go wherever you get your pods, just go and search on the mark golf and you'll find it. And and it's been it's I wouldn't call it a labor of love because as a young instructor, I always wanted to sort of be known. And I was successful, don't get me wrong, but you know, if you weren't on the front cover of the golf digest or whatever, you sort of weren't really known. And then this thing came about and I wanted to give a voice to, you know, people you might not have heard of, you know, people who are very insightful, people who can help anyone. And then also growing up in South Africa, you know, what I learned from the game was from books, like books by, uh, I felt like I was best friends with Bobby Jones and, and mm-hmm. the, golf, the Golf Digest or whatever it was whenever we got this thing. So for the folks in the other ports of the globe that don't have access to the, you know, the the great golf instructors, I wanted to make them available to folks. So, so, so it was sort of a multi-pronged approach, which has grown a life of its own. So <laughs> it's kind of crazy how the whole thing has panned out in four short seasons. Yeah. So, so speaking of South Africa, so you grew up there. I think your dad was a commissioner of a tour over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it a, ch- so outside of that, was it a challenge? Uh, I've, I've never been to South Africa and I'm not sure what the golf climate is over there. Obviously we see, uh, we see a lot of South Africans uh, on the tour, uh, but was it kind of was it hard to access and and uh, to play golf growing up? Certainly was, but judging the Cal by your setup, you'd fit into South Africa <laughs> just fine. <laughs> <laughs> you would make the perfect golf partner. Um, and in terms of you know, there are lots of golf courses. Uh, we're, we're a very sporty nation, South African folks. You know, you spend time outside. There's not as much television as what there is in the United States. So folks keep themselves entertained socially and, and golf is a great way to do that. Um, you know, it's, it's expensive. It always has been as it is everywhere else. And sure. especially now, sadly, golf is more expensive over there. But there's still a number of public golf courses um, like the place we grew at, my brother and I, uh, down in Somerset West. Um, they were always very accommodating to junior golfers. And I remember when... I began back in the day. Um, it was like a dollar to play as many holes as you could during a day. Mm. And, and there were kids running around there all of the time because, like my parents found out, this was perfect babysitting during the summertime. <laughs> oh, yeah. You send your kid to the golf course and they can just hang out there. And, and so golf is – a lot of people play. You know, Ernie Els, Gary Player is our, our legend and, and uh, Bobby Locke is our legend. And, but you, and then Nick Price and those sorts of guys – but Ernie Els was kind of the guy that brought the golf to the people, and he spurned a generation, if you will. Um, Ernie and I are about the same age. He's a little older than me. And uh, so a lot of folks are into golf because of Ernie. A lot of the South African fans still ask about Ernie all of the time because 
he's synonymous with golf. Um, and, and so golf is popular. Um, a lot of folks play, a lot of social golf, obviously. But, but sadly, the real, the real luxurious venues or those bucket list places over there, I, I hesitate to say they're out of reach for the common guy, which, which is sad for me. And, and it's maybe something that in, in another life I'd like to try and address a little bit. But golf is popular there. But to your question, um, for me, it was easy to get into just because of the accessibility of the golf club. And, and it's, it's a great place to be. It's a great place to learn. Um, and it's, uh, again, like I said, you know, my mom could drop us off there in the morning and pick us up there in the evening and <laughs> right. there's a day. Yeah, awesome. So I'm going to stay on the South African theme for just a second. Uh, I, I do want to get into the U.S. Open and I want to talk about some of the things you've been doing on course and, and maybe not specifically you, but maybe uh, you know, some of the events they've been having. But as it relates to South Africa or South, South Africans uh, mm-hmm. the, the, and the ties to wine. And, and we can start down the laundry list of, uh, of, of, of golfers that are, you know, that, that have a winery or have their own, their own labels. So what, what's the connection there? I mean, other than the, the obvious, right? I mean, you've got good grapes there, but I mean, what's the, what's the draw there? Well, you know, I, I think you have to sort of take a step back in history to, you know, South Africa's founding was a function of the spice trade, like way back in the days of the sure. Crusades was ruined. So, you know, the Portuguese and British and all the folks that were sort of dominating this, the Dutch, they had to find, find a way to get to the east. And so they got on their ships and they sailed south. And so you had to round the tip of Africa, which is a trip. Um, and, you know, scurvy and all that sort of stuff was a deal. So Cape Town, where I'm from, is just a natural port. And so they fortified, they made camp there. And then the Dutch, well, it was founded by the Portuguese which brings uh, the, the cuisine down there is off the charts. And so that's already why wine is, is a great idea. But the Portuguese brought some influence and they brought in some Malay people. So there's that kind of influence over there. And then the Dutch followed them around. And the Dutch sort of settled the place a lot more. It wasn't just a port. And so the Dutch folks, you know, I think back in history, you know, wine was what the elite folks did. And so the Dutch tried to make wine and that was a bad experiment. Because down where I, I'm from is very exposed. You get high winds, uh, warm summers, cold winters. A, a, a beautiful spot. But but if you don't know what you're doing, it can really sort of ruin things. And so they brought a number of French people down there called the French Huguenots. Mm. And, and they brought these French folk in. And apparently, the story goes, they looked at this corner that's just about an hour's trip outside of Cape Town. And... They saw this corner in the mountains there because Cape Town is like mountains and sea. That's what it right. is, kind of like Big Sur in California. And uh, they looked at this spot and they're like, this is like Bordeaux. Everything about this topography, the soil, the climate, the influence of the maritime over there. And so they called it French Hook, the Dutch people did, which is the French corner. <laughs> and they started making wine. And next thing, this wine was like the best French stuff you ever had. And <laughs> And so that was how wine came about. And then the Dutch people used the wine to make brandy. And so you, there's okay. a huge brandy influence over there. There's huge wine influence. And all of this stuff is just about an hour away from the sea. So in terms of wine growing and, and alcohol growing, it's, <laughs> it's sort of in our DNA, I guess, because our settlers would did this sort of thing. This is how they farmed initially. So there was wine and agriculture and that sort of deal. And then when the country expanded north, the Cape, where I'm from, was always just wine country. And so it's so sort of that's how it came about. And I grew up in the winelands. The you know, outside of Cape Town there's these little towns dotted around the place. And and Somerset West, where we're from, is like right at the foot of the mountains in the winelands. Nice. In fact, Simon Fundestell, who was the first governor of the Cape, he set up his homestead there called Fergelechen, which in Dutch means it lies far away. And this place is still one of South Africa's like great wine estates. And so, I mean, this is all we know. So, <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> in, in your DNA, I guess, right? a function of who I am. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> keeps, uh, keep, keeps you moving. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, Mark, is there a, um, uh, an Immelman Brothers label coming out soon? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to rely on Trevor for that. He's got a bit more disposable income than I do. Um, no, it, was, it was Ernie that said to me, he said, 
if you want to make a million dollars in wine, you've got to start with two million. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Ernie's, uh, Ernie's wine, his, his wine farm is just from my family home. It's probably 20 minutes driving. Oh, wow. That. Really? So he's down there and Retif Hurston's got the goose down there, which has got a magnificent Shiraz. Um, David Frost was like a mentor to me. He was the first one to foray into wine. A lot of his wines are great. And of course, Ernie is Ernie. Um, and his, his wines have... I guess just got more exposure than the rest because of who he is as a right. Hall of Famer. And so, so in terms of me having a wine label, no, maybe one day I've always said to my wife, I want a coffee shop. <laughs> doubles as a wine, st- a wine bar in the afternoon. So maybe when, when things slow down, I'll have wine and coffee, but I won't have my own label now. Yeah, nice, nice. Well, Dan, always a question we like to ask folks. Uh, Dan, usually I'm jumping the gun on on this, but he's excited, uh, so Mark. You, he's really excited. <laughs> how, how do you how do you take your coffee? Um, well, because I've got this dad belly thing happening, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be as keto whatever it is as possible. Mm-hmm. So I used to look Tracy, my wife, and I. We love everything Italy, so we love a cappuccino. And a good latte is tremendous. Um, and I used to be milk with coffee, but now because I'm sort of keto and trying to be in shape, I'm fasting until midday or whatever it is. So I just have it black. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and that used to suck initially. But now I find that – and I was taught this by a, a coffee shop guy in town here where I'm in Columbus. He, he put different coffees in front of me, blacked black and mm-hmm. he said you're into wine taste the difference here mm-hmm. now that i've gotten into that mindset and got beyond the decorating the coffee with sugar and cup and milk and stuff i actually appreciate black coffee to be honest mm-hmm. yeah but if you're uh, if you're get, buying good beans for sure i mean it's not you know if you're going and getting the uh you know the already ground in the tin on the shelf uh you, you're not going to get a lot out of that other than mm-hmm. brown water but if you're getting uh, getting good beans i mean you can definitely pull some stuff out of there that's something that we talked to people about, Mark, and we, we thought you'd had that kind of answer because we knew you were into wine. And generally, when people are into wine and they're, they're you know, tasting it properly and, and doing the nose and the palate and all that kind of stuff, you know, you can do that with the beans as well. And it looks like you yeah. found your, your niche there. And it's great for you considering you are, you know, on the wine side or whatnot that you can do that with coffee. And it has the benefits from a health perspective, not having to put the sugar and everything in. Yeah, well, look, from the health perspective, I'm not Phil Mickelson just yet drinking the stuff. <laughs> out of a jetty cup on the golf course. Um, but you're right. It's amazing. And I guess this is a lesson in life where if you just have an open mind and, and you're prepared to try something, you, you never know where your palate might progress. Because mm-hmm. if you had caught me three years ago and said, you're going to be drinking black coffee in the morning, I would have said, are you nuts? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll drink a coffee. I'll drink a cappuccino at 11 o'clock in the evening. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um but, but now all of a sudden, black coffee has become my thing. Now, when I go to a restaurant or if I'm somewhere, will I have a cappuccino? Absolutely. But, but, but the black thing has been, it's been sort of eye-popping, eye to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice, nice. Speaking of restaurants, uh, so you were in Atlanta, uh, what now, a couple of weeks ago for mm-hmm. the tour championship. Um, yeah. And uh, and I'm a fan of this restaurant. I saw on your Instagram you had posted you uh, you made a visit to Ten Degrees South. Mm. So I'm I'm sure that's a regular stop for you when you're in town. Um, yeah, it will look also that freaking Justin Anthony over there at ten, de- 10 Degrees South, and he's got a couple other places. It's just tremendous. And and you know, whereas we're um, we're we're American now, we, we became <laughs> citizens in 2016. You this the African dust never gets out from in between your toes. Mm-hmm. So. When you can go to a place that's got the taste of home and, and sort of the ambiance and the atmosphere and and just the sense of because a, a restaurant experience in South Africa is a night's worth. You don't go in there and eat and leave. Mm-hmm. You go in there and you have a few cocktails to start and then you have a appetizer or two and it's very family style always. And then you'll eat and then after eating, then there's dessert and aperitifs and stuff like that. So you go to you you go to a South African house for dinner, and it's about a four hour event. Okay? Oh, and wow. uh, and so you go to Ten Degrees South, and and they're not trying to turn tables over there. If you just want to sit and chat and just kind of commune, it's the perfect place to be. So whenever we are able, you know, I'm I'm in Columbus, Georgia, but whenever we're able, we'll we'll try and make a trip because the food is spectacular and just the the atmosphere feels like home. 
Yeah. So you, you posted a picture of, uh, I guess, the entree that you had there. Uh, and I didn't get I think you'd put it in like your story. So, you know, it, it kind of disappears after some time. So what, what was that? Do you recall? Um, I had lamb chops because my wife and I, you can set your wrist, your, your wrist watch and us ordering lamb wherever we go. <laughs> but it was a, a friend of mine. He had South African babuti, which is like yep. a shepherd's pie with a Malay twist. And then a friend, another friend had curry because where Durban, where my wife Tracy is from, is up the east coast of South Africa. And there's a huge um, Indian influence over there. So lots of curry and that sort of stuff. But Durban curry, they have it with a thing they call sambles. And sambles is like condiments. Like you have banana sliced on there yeah, and yeah. coconut. And so imagine Indian curry with those sorts of things, which adds like a sweet to the spicy. So the one guy had Durban curry, which he loved. The other guy had babuti, which... Um, it's like shepherd's pie with uh, a sort of a Malay spicy twist to it. Um, it has like ground beef and a few vegetables in there. And then like a, the toppings ordinarily are like mashed potatoes or something. Yeah, and I hadn't been there in some time. I got, got to get back up there. Yeah, it looked, looked really awesome. Incidentally, it was, Babuti was what my brother served at the champion's dinner at the Masters. Oh, oh really? Uh, Very cool. Yeah, when he hosted the dinner after victory, victory that was that was the meal, and apparently, I, I hear it was pretty well received. Yeah, nice, nice. Mm. Uh, yeah, you're probably thinking, "What in the hell did I get myself into?" We've been uh, we've, we've we've been going here for uh, several minutes, and uh, we really haven't talked any golf. But uh, just right up to, my alley, man. Well, you know, I, I mean, it's you know, interesting stuff. I mean, obviously, we did a little research on you before you came on, and and following you on social media. I mean, it's uh, it's like, yeah, we could just talk. Uh, the whole hour and probably not even get into golf. Uh, I don't know if the listeners necessarily want to go down that path, but uh, sometimes it's got to be about us, man. Of course, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, look, well, well, I've always believed golf is sort of a microcosm of life, right? And 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 we talk about having an open mind and an open palate. You know, if if you approach golf with eyes wide open, and you understand that when you get on the golf course, I guess the coaching me is coming out now that. You're going to hit with, be hit with sensory overload no matter where you're playing. And, and what your job is to be aware of everything, you sure. know, understand what's crucial, and make decisions accordingly. So, so say in a funny sort of a way, there's this, this synergy between what life is and what a round of golf is like. Yeah, there are the parallels. I mean, to your point, I mean, if you look at it in that sense and, and uh, you know, if you're golf minded, I mean, you're everybody's life minded. I mean, you just kind of, you know, if you, again, open mindedness, uh, you, you can definitely find the uh, uh, the parallels between the two. So, uh, so into the coaching realm. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we've talked, uh, we've had quite a few coaches or instructors on okay. and, and we always, uh, we tend to go down the road of, uh, and everybody's doing it right. I mean, such a drastic change. I, I guess there's two things. I mean, you look at like, uh, if you've seen the picture of Phil from 2006 and then the picture of Phil from 2020, yeah. right. And, and the guy's just, you know, he's, he's playing good golf still swing speeds have maybe in increased, right. Uh, they definitely have it decreased for him. And then, and then, you know, the opposite of that. You take someone, you, you know, if you look at uh, uh, DeChambeau uh, mm -hmm. five or six years ago and a picture of 2020, he's done the exact opposite, right? I mean, he's kind of gained all the weight that Phil lost. Yeah. And, and then, you know, his weight increase has increased his swing speeds, or at least that's what he's touting or tying it to. Uh, so do you, I mean, are you kind of, what, what's, the, what's the difference there? I mean, what's the break on that? Well, I saw the funniest meme, this is an aside, but it's along <laughs> these lines where some guy, maybe it was a tweet or whatever, and he said, after watching Bryson play, I'm going to go home, eat pizza for 30 days straight and tell my <laughs> wife it's in an in effort to improve my golf. <laughs> um, so, but, but, but here's the thing. I, I guess it's best, in, best encapsulated by a conversation I had with Gary Woodland on the golf course. I know time blurs, but it was here since we returned from the COVID lockdown. Mm -hmm. And Gary Woodland's lost like 30 pounds mm -hmm. in fantastic sure. shape. And so I asked him about it because Bryson was playing alongside. All right. So, so I said to him, Gary, I got Bryson has picked up 50 pounds and you that shed 30. What's the story? And he said, you know what? You just got to do what you got to do to be able to bring out your best. And so I said, well, do you feel better for it? And he said, yeah, you know, I, I, I find at the end of the day, I'm not as worn out. I find at the end of the day, just those niggles, those aches and pains aren't as prevalent because, you know, with weight loss comes, you know, less inflammation and that yeah. stuff is dangerous. And so, so I guess my answer to it is if you believe that you've got to pick up or get stronger and do whatever to hit the ball farther and 
you believe implicitly in what you're doing, go for it. But by the same token, I always approach golf and instruction from a very holistic point. And, and I'm here to say to you that most of us could afford to shed a few pounds a la Woodland and we'll probably turn out better because we'll move faster, we'll be more healthy because in the end, the thing that I'm always looking for for every golfer, whether you're a PGA Tour guy or some beginner, is just in being injury free. Sure. And, and my hope for all PGA Tour players and all competitive golfers is to go through your career sans injury. So, so the main thing is to believe in what you're doing. The main thing is to understand that it's not some magic elixir. You know, you can't suddenly lose weight and get better. But you do stack the odds in your favor. Or if you're Bryson, by getting bigger and doing all these exercises that he has, he's identified that power off the tee is how he's going to improve. And so he's all in. So my advice to whoever listening to this is whatever you decide, be all in. Don't sort of go in like what with one foot saying, well, I'm going to try this. You're going to dive right in there. And if you eventually figure out, well, this is not doing it, then you modify your approach. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good, good insight there for sure. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm going to go in a direction, then I'll, I'll pull it back. But uh, just so in, it, you mentioned the uh, since the comeback from COVID, and I thought one of the really interesting things that happened, you know, so so for a good period of time, golf was the only live sport on TV. Yeah. And, you know, typically or, or before co- pre-COVID. Please excuse uh, my dog barking outside. Oh, that's okay. Going bananas about something. Yeah, okay. I, I thought that was Dan again. <laughs> so I, I, I was texting him. <laughs> uh, so pre-COVID, the Wednesdays were reserved for the pro-ams, mm-hmm. right? And obviously with social distancing, et cetera, not allowing people on the course, that went away. And then, you know, they started uh, kind of plugging in these uh, the little charity events, uh, nine-hole charity events in the afternoon. Uh, you know, it looked like, and, and we enjoyed watching you on, uh, I don't, I'm not going to say all, cause I probably didn't watch all of them, but I definitely enjoyed you on uh, the ones that I did watch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, how was that received by the players? Cause I, I know that, you know, I, I think everybody's been pretty outspoken and they don't really want to be mic'd up while they're playing in tournament. Right. And for, for various reasons. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in that charity event, it's definitely, uh, you know, there's, there's money on the line. It's for a good cause, et cetera. But you know, you've got kind of some closer access than you would have. So what's the, what, what's the appetite for something like that to continue? Um, you know what, I think it's a great idea because, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking the 36,000-foot view sure. over here yep. where, you know, you get together, you get a number of golf pundits together, and the first thing they're always talking about is growing the game, right? And you grow the game by just exposing different people to it. So one of them I was involved with here in Atlanta, you've got Jerome Bettis in yeah. <laughs> running back. Yep. And you've got uh, Vince Carter, you know, yep. one of the great uh, NBA players of all time. So it, when Vince's fans see this and they see golf, they're like, okay, this is real. It's kind of what Tiger did. And, and when the football players see, hey, yes, yes, Jerome, the bus, they actually played really well. Man, may, maybe this is something I can look into. So from that point of view, I thought it was great. But with a PGA Tour player, they, they get the fact that they're a charitable organization. And all of them have their own charities that they support. And right. the tour is a rule, you know, that, that was just, just to sidetrack a little bit. That was one of the biggest things that all the folks from the tour I spoke to, and this is the executives, when they were locked down, they kept on referencing the towns that they weren't going to because bringing a PGA Tour event there just did so much for the local economy yeah. and then did so much for the local charities and all the beneficiaries were now suffering too. So there was this huge ripple effect from being locked down. And, and now you've got a novel way with these things of still raising money for charity, you know, so the charitable initiatives are still uh, benefiting. And then the PGA Tour player has that mindset. So from that point of view, those things were massively successful and they were hugely entertaining because like you say, you got two non-golf people mic'd up. Like in Minneapolis, they had, um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank now. Uh, he's an actor. My wife thinks he's hugely sexy. Oh yeah. Uh, Josh Dumont. Josh yep. Demel, yeah, yeah. Um, I would, I would never have got that. But, <laughs> but you got Josh Demel, and then he comes on, and so it's a different thing. So, you, you, you're mixing these these genres. Um, there's the synergy between everything. Charity wins, and it's a way for the PGA Tour player to to also widen their footprint a little bit. So, does it Im- continue in the future? 
Um, I don't know. If we stay in the same protocols that we currently are, I would expect it would. Right. Um, but the pro-am still, you know, when because a large part of the the sponsorship of a player or the sponsorship of an event is the warm and fuzzy of it. You know, you could put your Penguin logo on Immelman and, you know, that gets something. But when I go and hang out with some of Penguin's right. guests and I give them golf tips and I tell them a story or two, there, there's, there's added value to that. So, so from that <coughs> point of view, the Pro-Am will never go away because you've got 120 guests that get to play golf with some of the greats of all time. Right. That's a bucket list thing, right? I mean, playing a great golf course is one thing, but playing a great golf course alongside Tiger Woods, well, you know, now you're checking all of the boxes. So, mm-hmm. so is it great now? Yes. Will it continue? Hopefully. Will the Pro-Am go away? Don't think so. Oh, it's good news. Uh, I was bringing that up because I was, uh, you know, going to ask for an invitation after we get done recording. So. Uh, you got you to talk to people way above my pay grade for that one. Uh, all right. So uh, I don't know, Dan. You got any, you want to uh, do anything before we get to the U.S. Open? Uh, well, Mark, you know, you are um, feet on the ground. Is uh, you have any? Like, talk about stories. Uh, you, Without fans there, you, you've mm-hmm. been feet on the ground behind some of these groups or whatnot. Were there any favorites that you uh, you were behind that uh, was like, man, that was a ton of fun that day that stick out to you? You know, it, I can probably say all of them because this this time after, or this time returning to golf, you know, to be a part of that CBS show at the first one back, that was exhilarating. I mean, you know, Jim Nance, is he's called and seen it all. Mm-hmm. And for Jim yeah. Nance to be on a Zoom call with a group of us before we were head to Fort Worth to say, look, this could be the most significant broadcast we ever do when this guy's called Final Fours and Super Bowls and Masters. You know, I was like, whoa. And <laughs> so we got there and it was just so different. No one expected what was going on. And we had crews spit all over the show. So it was crazy from that point of view. But the first one in Fort Worth, you know, I was calling Marikawa coming down the stretch. And I'd been beating the Colin Marikawa drum for a long mm-hmm. time, okay? Mm-hmm. And all Rightfully sudden, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was even from when he graduated college. Mm-hmm. Okay. I made some quip on a show one time. I got absolutely skewered on social media. For it. <laughs> but it, I was having this moment of clarity, right? <laughs> and so Marikawa was in the show, and he hit the shot with a six iron to about six feet. Perfectly flighted, just, just majestic. And I'd seen numbers from when he was in college showing that on launch monitor data, his proximity with a six iron or his dispersion with a six iron was better than the average PGA Tour pro's dispersion with a nine iron. Wow. Wow. So you knew this kid was legit, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd been shouting about this. And then they have this thing where they set it all up and they played it the week before on CBS, I believe it was. And they went through the group of us, Baker Finch, Nobolomi, so who do you think is going to play well? And I hit them because they're all going Rory and the sort of the names. Mm-hmm. And I hit them with Marikawa. <laughs> and Baker Finch goes, that's a good pick. And and then turns out Colin now climbs up the leaderboard, is in right. contention. But for a crazy miss on 18, wins the thing. Mm-hmm. So that was memorable being the first one back. Um, calling Webb Simpson to a win at uh, Hilton Head. Mm-hmm. We just went bananas over the final, I don't know how many holes it was that there was lots of fun, um, uh, you know, being in in Dublin, Ohio for two weeks for the Marikawa victory and then for the uh, for the memorial thereafter with Ram winning and getting to number one. That was memorable because it's Jack's place. Mm-hmm. Sure. Not having fans was kind of crazy. But I think just the overall thing, I, if, if you had to ask me what the big takeaway was, I'd almost say that we can't pat the PGA Tour on the back enough for what they did. Mm-hmm. One for um, just being resolute in the fact that we are getting back into this because at the second event, they had a couple co- positive tests, COVID yep. tests, mm-hmm. and every, very, most of the folks in the media were screaming for the thing to shut down again. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the tour just stuck by their guns. They're like, we believe in our policy. We're going to do the right thing. These guys are professionals. We are going ahead. And now to look back on this, now all the folks who were pointing fingers are going, they went 12 straight weeks with like 11 positive cases or something. Yep. If you had said that to me, I would have said you're a nutcase. <laughs> but there was so much that was being learned through the whole time too. So, so, so I think, you know, looking back on the whole thing, you know, when I'm 60, God willing or whatever, I will say 2020 and what the PGA Tour did 
in this comeback was was monumental. It, it was such a big effort, and, and and they they can't get enough praise for what they did. Absolutely. I mean, the execution side is one thing, but but just having uh, having the gall to actually take that chance because I mean that is like truly i mean make or break right i mean if that thing goes the other way it's like you know i mean it's, it's not an i told you so moment i mean it's yeah. like ripping people apart well that's the thing and, and you know the tour is, is has had some fantastic leaders and dean beeman obviously he was kind of the, the grandfather and tim fincham but but jay monahan and i was at the players championship for pga tour live and i'll never forget i mean thursday evening we were dinner with my colleagues and a couple of rules officials and you know, COVID, the, the news had just started spreading, and I was on the course. I had the, I had the John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka group, and walking down 14 fairway, Rory still looks at me and he goes, "How about this? Um, the NCA basketball being cancelled?" And I was like, "Yeah, it's crazy. Who knows what's going on over here?" And, and it was all this new stuff. But that evening, we're having dinner and we're planning for the next day's show. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I'm walking back to the hotel, and I get this call from the folks at. Um, CBS HQ, who I do, do some work from, from, and they're like, can you get on? And this is 10.30 in the evening. I'm like, well, what? <laughs> You've done the recap of the show. <laughs> and the guy goes, well, you hadn't heard they've canceled the tournament. Mm. And I was like, serious? So we do the show, and the next morning, I'll never forget packing up in my hotel room on a Friday morning to drive home. Mm. And I had Jay Monahan's press conference on there. And he was honestly made for this time. Mm-hmm. I, and I texted him afterwards, and I said, Commissioner, you were made for this moment and you dealt with this with, with compassion, you know, with leadership, but there was this human element to him sure. and, and how he looked honestly distraught that they were having to cancel this event and, and you could see he was like, well, we're going to do the right thing, but we don't know what the future holds because mm-hmm. they hadn't canceled the next events just yet. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, through it all, looking back on this whole thing, his leadership uh, and just how he dealt with the whole thing too was it was a case study in servant leadership to me awesome yeah yeah nice all right so i'm going to spin us in a different direction now we're, we're <laughs> let, let's get to it's a big week for us uh big week in the world of golf so the u.s open uh it's the uh you know i think it's noted as maybe the uh, the best field ever uh, given that, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, so I, I guess first question, have you played Wingfoot? No. Uh, okay. I mean, honestly, for a guy in golf, they're very, I, I haven't played very many golf courses. I've been to a lot of great courses, but no, I have not. I have not, unless I'm losing my mind, played golf in the New York area. So this is a shameless plug for anyone listening. If you want to have me to play golf in New York somewhere, I'd love to join you. Nice, nice. Uh, yeah, he's bringing a twosome, by the way. <laughs> Three of us. Unless, unless Dan, Dan didn't play golf. I'm, I'm just true. kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Good stuff. Uh, so I was watching the interviews the other day, and uh, one that really stuck out, you know, well, so I guess with the, uh, so, you know, from, from the broadcast side uh, and watching, you know, everybody's talking about how this is going to be uh, uh, uh uh, shot makers course, right? It's, it's fairways and greens, fairways and greens, which I mean, that's kind of golf in general, right? If you hit fairways mm-hmm. and greens, it's going to work out pretty good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the one that kind of stuck out for me and, and everybody was asking, well, what's Bryson going to do? And, you know, in his MO coming back is, you know, he's like, Hey, I'm just going to hit it as far as I can find it. And then I'm going to hit it on the green. And they interviewed him and, uh, you know, he pretty much gave me my line right there. Cause that's, that's yeah. pretty much what he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what's your, what, what do you think is going to happen there? Is that if you were coaching, if you were in, and I may ask this of a few other players, uh, obviously you don't have to share, but if you're coaching and I, I think that, you know, the player's going to do what the player's going to do, I suppose. I mean, there's a team and there's probably a quorum that's going to give them some guidance, but is in and maybe you answered this earlier when you're like just believe in what you're doing but i mean is that is that mentality gonna work at a place like wingfoot um well yes the thing about power and, and i guess i'll preface my observations with the fact that golf is a game of probability and you're just trying to stack the odds in your favor that's that's what you're doing now some oftentimes most times the best laid plans are laid to waste Right, or the best made plans are laid to waste. Sure. Uh, but if you're hitting it long off the tee, you have the odds in your favor because 
out of rough, especially in the fairways this week, are averaging about the 25 yards across thing, which is narrow for anyone playing, mm-hmm. even the accurate guys. Um, you are sure closer to the green. You'll be hitting less clubs. So you can get the ball out of that rough easier. So the chances of getting the ball to the green are improved. I'd rather hit a wedge out of the rough than a five iron out of the rough. That's just logical, right? Right. So from that point of view, what Bryson's doing, you know, there's merit to it because he's able to. But the way Wingfoot stacks up to me is like you look at the last time that you had a U.S. Open there. Jeff Ogilvie wins, and Jeff Ogilvie is one of the great chippers and pitchers of all time. And he's kind of the guy who can recover well. Now he can hit it, but he's not long like Phil, who was in contention. Right. You had Colin Montgomery, who was also part of the storyline, whose game is predicated more on precision and accuracy. And Jim Furyk was in the storyline too there, and his game was always also more precision and accuracy. So you had four different contenders or, or different types of games that were all able to thrive at Wingfoot, which makes it a great course. But the whole thing about the place to me is the length, certainly. But if it stays firm like everyone's screaming, you know, you can get the ball rolling down those bent fairways and it'll go forever. Mm. Right. I mean, j- quickly, I, I, I did my nut um, when Tiger made his return from golf to golf uh, at the Memorial. Mm-hmm. And the Memorial Jack, because they were uh, going to basically dig up the golf course and redo the place for next year's Memorial right after this year's Memorial right. 2020. Right. I mean, the place was like an ice skating rink and mm. the wind was blowing across the fairways and the greens were firm and Tiger was you no know, wily, just a guile of the man. He was just caressing drivers out there that were hidden like the 280 range and roll 40. Mm. Sure, he still have a scoring club in his hand, but from the fairway. But then you get pundits that are jumping onto shuttling data and they're like, well, Tiger's <laughs> swing speed's only 111 miles an hour. You know, he's clearly he's not well. I'm like, Tiger is just doing what Tiger's going to do to get the ball in the hole, right? So, so, so that's where, like Wingfoot, you're going to hear a bunch of folks saying, well, it's so long. Yes, it's long. But if you get the ball going on those fairways, you're going to be fine. I feel like the major test still is on the greens around there. Mm. And Jeff yeah. proved it. And, and there's so many humps and hollows. And so I feel like even though you're a precision iron player, you're going to have one that gets on the wrong side of a slope. And you're going to have to, one of those sorts of putts where three putt avoidance will be a big deal. I think lag putting will be a big deal. I think shot placement will be a big deal, you know, because not every 15 footer is the same. You know, 15 feet above the hole breaking with five feet worth of break versus 15 feet straight up the hill. Those are two different putts. So, so as I look at this golf course and what I've seen so far, now again, I have not been on the premises mm-hmm. and I haven't spoken to anyone there. Mm-hmm. But just from my overall assessment, I feel like power is an advantage, but I still feel like getting the ball onto the green in the right place is going to be the major calling card. And then you better have some gumption about you around the greens and, and, and find a way to get down into. And Bob Jones, who won the, the, his US Open there, you know, he was always credited with saying the key to golf was turning three strokes into two. <laughs> and I feel like doing that around the greens there is going to be probably the biggest calling card. Mm. Yeah, yeah, nice. So you mentioned uh, uh, shot links or your track man or, you know, there's numerous, uh, numerous things out there today. Get me on my pedestal now. <laughs> <laughs> wind, it, wind him up and let him go. Yeah. Well, so I, I guess, you know, and being at Columbus State, you've got, uh, you know, you've got uh, new players coming in every year, right? Um, so I guess twofold. One is, you know, what's uh, your and people that listen to you may already know this, but uh, we'd like to hear it on here. So what's your take on that? And is it is it data and analytics or is it, you know, watching and feel? And then is there, a, a, I guess, a right time at a right place for it? And is there too much of it? So it's kind of three part question, but that, that'll get us there. This is what I know. Um, the great players. By the way, I'm jealous of you topping up. My, my I'm silently correcting your grammars. <laughs> the great players, uh, they use everything at their disposal. They will use fitness. They will use mental and emotional training. They will use swing instruction. They will use short game instruction. They will use data analytics. And they use everything. And there's, there's not one... Well, every player fights this. 
you, you mustn't allow one of these points of information to hold more precedence over the other. Mm. Problem is that every golfer has one or two weaknesses and the better you get, the more you become aware of the weaknesses because as you look through the golfer's progression, think back to when you first started, right? You hit a bunch of bad shots and when you hit the good shot, this is like the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. And you live in your good shots, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. And so the bad golfers essentially got a little bit better in attitude about improvement than the good golfer does because then the better you become, the more lower scores are a function of getting rid of the odd bad shot. Mm -hmm. So you start to focus more on the failures than what you do on the successful ones. Most good, most golfers will hit a fantastic drive and they'll pick up the tee and go, oh, supposed to do that. <laughs> and then as soon as they miss something, they're like, wasn't supposed to do that. I'm a failure. Mm -hmm. right. Crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I learned this from Larry Myers when I worked with him. He said, he goes, if I'm going to own my bad shots, I have to own my good shots too. So to your question, I'm sort of sidetracked a bit, but I'll get back there. The, the great golfers use everything. Now, like I said to you, not every 15-footer is the same. Sure. So just looking at data and going, just throwing a shots, a strokes gained answer to the thing, that's intellectually lazy in my behalf. Now, I've got huge respect for Mark Brody. He's been on my show. The information that he puts out is used by everybody. And it's a great way to compare yourself to fields. Mm -hmm. and it's so good that it's now coming into the amateur market, the, the regular golfer's market. Mm -hmm. Right. But still... You know, if you're looking at data all of the time, I'll tell you this for free. Dustin Johnson, current world's number one, he is not gaining, gazing at strokes, link, <laughs> strokes gain stuff after rounds. <laughs> you know, you play the game by feel. It's a scientific game, but, but the real sweet spot, in my opinion, is where the science and the art of it intersect. So, yes, do I use launch monitors? Heck yes, I've got three, okay? <laughs> Flight scope, different models. We can move these things around. Do I use... Uh, uh, statistical analysis absolutely but do i understand that there's a place for everything sure you know there's a place when statistics go out of the window right. when you are standing on the final fairway this is a mike furick thing jim's dad long time coach it was i was a young instructor still and jim was playing a practice round with one of my clients and so on about the 14th hole i plucked up the courage to ask furick because i looked in his bag and only his eight iron had a lead strip on the back of it. All of the others weren't. I'm like, Jim, really? And he said, well, that one feels different to the rest. And this was the perfect segue <laughs> to, for me to go, you can feel the difference, right? <laughs> and he said, and then I looked at Mike, and I'm like, I credit you guys for remaining true to what Jim does. And Jim goes, Mike goes, and Jim agreed. He goes, we are just getting him to a place where on the 13th, 14th, whatever hole, on the final round of the U.S. Open, if he's standing up there trying to hit a cut six iron, he hits a cut six iron, no matter what it looks like. So, so you see there's, the, there's that approach where understanding that sometimes the science goes away. Mm -hmm. When you're standing on the 18th green and you've got the putt to win the money off your buds, you're not thinking about the fact that your negative strokes gain something, if your statistics say so. Mm -hmm. yeah, like, sure. I've got to pluck up the courage <laughs> and knock one down here. Mm -hmm. So you see there's, there's more to it. So back to where I began Yes, it's great stuff. Statistical analysis is awesome, and it's opened up a lane that is empowering golfers to make smart decisions on what they've got to work on. But trust me, the great golfers, they'll take that stuff and put it right where it belongs, and it's time to get out there and play. So, so they use everything, and I would advocate that everyone listening to this does the same thing. Yeah, and is, is that so as, as a coach – is that uh, is is that a, is that a shared responsibility across the team, or is that uh, is the coach kind of taking the role in that and making sure that those elements are being utilized? And I won't say equally, but proportionately to what the need is. You know, that's a, that that is a super question, and I'll be honest, I don't know the exact answer to that because it's it's kind of generic. You know, for people, it could be different. Like right. certain, certain players, and I'll talk to the tour because I work out there, certain players are way more involved with the research. Brasson. Mm -hmm. And certain players are way less involved with the research. DJ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, so I, I don't know, but, but within each team, I'm sure there's the tip of the spear. But the real deal is the tip of the spear in the end is the dude that's got his hands on the rubber end of the club because yeah. you're the guy who's hitting the ball in the end. So, so, so I'm sure there are teams where responsibilities are shared and I'm sure there are teams where there aren't. 
what the key for the golfer is, because again, it ends with the golfer, the buck stops with him or her. It's for the golfer to arrange stuff in, in an environment that best suits the situation. Yeah. Very nice, man. Very nice. So any predictions? What do you got uh, this week, Mark? Um, you know what? You can't look past... Frank Nobolo said this to me one time because I'd never really thought about it this way. But he said to me, if you look on the PGA Tour, the guys who are contending are the guys that are putting best of the guys who are ball striking the best. Because mm-hmm. in the end, it's always a putting contest. Mm-hmm. But you can't... The, the, no great putter in the world is going to navigate his way around the fact that you're playing from the trees all of the time. Right. Playing out of the rough. And this week, I, I don't think you can habitually play out of the rough and contend. I, I think that's a, that's a short lifespan because four rounds is going to be grueling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so so I'm, I'm sort of looking at the guys who are hitting the ball well, who are confident that are putting pretty well right now. And, and the two names that are springing to the forefront is – Dustin Johnson. I mean, have you have you watched this guy play golf lately? <laughs> okay. He can't bet and, and John, that's for sure. And John Rahm too. I think the way they both drive the ball, uh, I think Rahm has a slight edge around the greens over DJ. But DJ just has that that immeasurable, that confidence right now mm-hmm. that is off the charts. And he actually spoke to that in pre-tournament uh, comments. He said, I'm really happy with where I am. The game feels good and I'm confident. And and confidence is that thing we strive for, but no one knows how to get. Mm-hmm. Crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say we can see it out there on the course, but it, uh, it kind of always looks the same. You see it in the score. It reflects in his score, but you don't really see it in his, uh, in his we'll actions watch, and demeanor. We'll, we'll, we'll watch with that. Watch with shot selection. You, you will watch the golfer who's not confident play defense in situations mm-hmm. because the truth of it is, if you're playing poker, you can sort of fold your way around the golf course and still make a decent score. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you saw that at the BMW Championship. Dustin wasn't very sharp after that virtuoso thing in Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The par. Mm-hmm. Um, and at Boston, I was there. I called him for half of that round that was supposed to be like 56 that turned into 60. Um, he hit everything. Everything he was over, you could see he was trying to hit that shot. There was never a gear down. But then in uh, the BMW in Chicago there were situations where he was missing shots and stuff like that. And he was picking, making smart plays. He was sort of doing the Jack Nicholas or the Tiger Woods. Right. So that's a golfer who's not that confident in the physical element of the thing, but he's confident in the fact that I can gear down and still contend. Mm-hmm. And he found a way to still contend, but for a crazy putt on the playoff hole, DJ might've won two in a row. Yeah. 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 So, so you can see by a player's confidence by shots that they select. <laughs> now there might be situations where the whole calls for a gear down off the tee. But if you know the driver's a dude's calling card and he's going away from that, then you know there's something up. Or if you know that the fade shot is what they go to and then he hits a few that start left and draw, then you know he's not that confident either and you'll probably see a change. So, so you can see confidence in the swagger, in the shot selection, in the speed at which putts roll at the hole. The golfer is not confident that stuff's going to be dribbling around the hole and just getting there. Right? Mm-hmm. The guy who's confident, that stuff's going in like a homesick mole. Because mm-hmm. he's hitting with speed, mm-hmm. so uh, so so you can sort of see if a golfer is confident by some of the shots they select and play. Uh, I think DJ took uh, forget you were probably there like seven putters and was trying them yeah. all out like on a Wednesday night or something. I'm not sure yeah. if he's still doing that before the the tournament started. That's kind of unconventional, right? To be making that kind of selection that late in the the prep. Well, if if you had to go to a PGA Tour event for a few weeks in a row, you see a number of guys that have got multiple putters on the greens. Mm. And DJ's fiddling with drivers every week. Mm. Every week he's on the range, changing settings on drivers, just trying to make sure the thing never goes to the left-hand side. I mean, it's a constant adjustment. Wow. Um, but to that, I, I must uh, give credit to my brother. Mm-hmm. Who was He was out on the course, I think in Memphis, um, and DJ had come off that horrible run where he'd shot like 18, 80, and 78. Yeah. And I was in a tower, and Trevor, out before the broadcast... DJ had put the original black putter back in the bag. And he had this fantastic putting day and shot something in the 60s. And Trevor said to him, DJ, I've got a question for you. And DJ's like, yeah. He goes, every time you have this thing out, you always putt well with it. Why do you have a change? <laughs> and DJ's response was, I have no idea. <laughs> but this, I mean, that sort of speaks to the golfer. Every golfer, they think that maybe a club change will be the new broom yeah. that sweeps clean. 
Uh, but but DJ's onto something with that putter right now, so I don't think you're going to see it going anywhere. Yeah. Tiger Woods is the same deal. He had an, the original putter, then an old, the, the new putter out for the PGA Championship. There was a big brouhaha made of this thing. Mm-hmm. Didn't putt very well. Now he's got the old one back, but he's got a new grip on the thing. This is who golfers are. Now, the one thing about Woods, he's used that putter for like umpteen seasons. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You were at, at Eastlake um, for the Tour Championship all, all the days there? What was? Yep. Did oh, you yeah. see him on the DJ on the range on that uh, Sunday night before the Monday finish? Uh, no, I don't recall seeing him there. We'd gone back to the television. Okay, okay. I was I just what I did see. Go ahead. Final round. I'm I'm there on eighteen, and Bryson DeChambeau got onto the range on Monday evening after the event. Really? Wow. Had balls for about an hour. Wow. wow. Which wow. was eye-opening to me. Yeah, it speaks to the desire of the guy. So no, I didn't. I didn't see DJ um, on the range personally. I saw the social media stuff of it. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes with a golfer like that, that's just a wind down. You know, that's just a. Uh, well, I'm, I might have felt something on the golf course today that really was what I'm after. I'm trying to galvanize what I'm feeling. So sometimes that session has a different purpose. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh my god, my golf swing is folding up. I'm going to try and find something. Mm-hmm. So so. I don't know exactly what the meaning was behind that, but it could have been anything. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. What's uh, What's Xander's secret recipe to uh, to Eastlake, man? I mean, that guy. And which which is screwy? I know we're uh, we we don't want to keep you all. You're not going to stay with us all day. Let me rephrase that. Uh, but but since uh, since since we went there, I, I got to open up with a drink. I'd be here for a while. There you go. <laughs> uh, I mean, I may be able to find something. Um, so, I mean, that dude is like, and again, I mean, just, you know, he's playing extremely consistent just uh, since the return, even before the return. And I guess technically he kind of got a win at East Lake, but he didn't get a win at East Lake, you know, get, so, but that, that guy's just a machine there. Uh, what, what's, what's going on there? When, and how does one, uh, it just fits his eye and it, it, yeah. it just works. I mean, what's the, what's happening? Well, that's the thing, you know, there's, there really are horses for courses where a golf course sort of sets up and you feel comfortable and 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 holes fit your shape and 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 it's just easy on you. But I'll never forget back in seventeen when it was his first um, tour championship. I was there for PGA Tour Live and I was doing my pre-tournament reconnaissance and I was on fifteen green just having a look around and he and his caddy Austin were out there on the greens. So I wandered over to him. So I was like, "Well, what do you think?" And his response to me was, "He goes the Zoysia Fairways." feel very much like home to me hmm. from Southern yeah. California where yep. they play on Kikuyu. Sure. So he goes, the, the, the ball, the way the ball sits in the fairways is comfortable to me. And, and, and so his swing does well in sort of situations like that where he sweeps the ball off the turf. Cause Zoysia typically likes a golfer who picks the ball off the grass where tight Bermuda, you got to dig the thing out there a little bit more. So, so, so he said the grass made him feel comfortable and uh, obviously the golf course shapes well for him. And, but he's a big time hunter. You know, he's, he's got something about him that when the chips are down at a big place, he'll find a way to contend. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll, he's someone you might want to consider this week for the U S open. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he's, he, his response to me was, it feels the grass felt like home, which, which I found curious because everywhere off the fairways is Bermuda grass and such mm-hmm. right. down there in uh, Southern Cal, you've got Kikuyu everywhere and then Pioneer on the greens. Mm-hmm. But you hit a number of shots from the fairway, and so he's comfortable with that stuff. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so, so far we've had, uh, let's see, it's kind of weird with this, the way things are falling. So I, I want to say we've got three majors this year. We do have three majors in the year of 2020, maybe not in the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got a, we've got a first-time winner in Kalamurakawa for the PGA. Um, we've got uh, the U.S. Open this week and then the Masters in November. Don't uh, think you, I don't think you'll see a first-time winner this week. Yeah, okay, you don't. Uh, I, I, it's like we've been doing this all of our lives. I mean, you're, uh, you're reading my mind. <laughs> well, no, it's... Uh, one foot... I guess, I guess the advantage for the first-timer around there is the fact that um, no one's really seen it since 2006. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, essentially, it's a new golf course to everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. So, the practice round time, everyone's learning the place. Because it has been changed a bit since you know Phil and Tiger and played back in 06. Sure, but you're getting to a new golf course, so 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 the learning time is the same. So that I think is the only thing they got playing in their favor. The one thing about a hard golf course at a major, 
is this, you've got to have a major championship mindset. And that major championship mindset is to is like the NFL quarterback. You've got to be able to sift through all of the noise and take a few hits and still deliver the shot, the, 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 the pass, the throw, the shot, whatever, you know, when the chips are down. So Wingfoot is going to ask that. And I think Wingfoot is going to test folks emotionally and mentally as well. And so you're going to see the guys that are comfortable in that uncomfortable space uh, come to the fore. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right, Cal. You know, we've kept long enough. Wrap up with the, your uh, your your well, favorite questions. We're going to go to the Masters. I, I, I cut over him over there. <laughs> well, I, I figured you already knew the question. But <laughs> what the Masters? Look, the Masters in November is going to be awesome. You, you think I it's going to play like extremely? You think that there's going to be a huge difference in it being in a, a spring tournament versus a fall tournament? You think that's going to weigh in in either direction or? Um. Yeah, wind condition wise, it will, because there in the in the springtime, the winds tend out of the southeast ish. In the wintertime, here in Georgia, the winds come out of the north a little bit more and bring the cold weather down, mm-hmm. and that makes the hole like the first hole straight into the a northerly chilly breeze. Yep. If you've got the eight fifteen tea time and you've got fifteen from the north into you, that's a different animal. And so, from that point of view, the golf course will play a little differently. Here in Georgia, um. Typically, well, now we're getting Hurricane Sally or whatever she is. Yeah, it's it's raining here. I guess I'll probably hit you first. You know, the typically in Georgia, as you know, it's kind of dry. And so from that point of view, I think it'll play the make the golf course play awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they just have the situation there because it's on rye. It's on rye in the spring. And this is early in the rye season. You might see a little Bermuda in the fairway mixed in there, but it'll play very much the same. But it'll be a little harder with the with the northerly wind if it blows. And, and I think it'll be a little firmer. I mean, firm golf courses are difficult golf courses for a PGA Tour professional. So uh, I think it's going to be a heck of a tournament. Um, the Encore Azalea blooms twice a year, as are blooming right now. So you'll see some azaleas and some flowers and stuff out there. <laughs> oh, nice. I'm, I'm sure they've got a greenhouse. Uh, they're, they're priming those babies. I will remember the, uh, the tornado that came through several years ago, you know, yeah, knocked a bunch storm. of stuff down. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and the next day, you know, they've got, uh, they, they're planting stuff overnight. So <laughs> uh, it's, that place, the, it's, it's so special to me. I'm, I'm a Bob Jones fanatic and obviously we've got great history over there, but, but, but Augusta national is just, it's a place that's like heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was one year, this was during tournament time, at about 2 a.m. in the morning, we have a storm that I swear is Armageddon. I, it, was, it, it was like the place was blowing up and there were winds blowing in the, the garden of the house we were staying in. There was a massive pine tree that was blown over. Mm, wow. They pushed, the, they, they pushed the opening time back by 30 minutes. Normally it opens at 8.30. They opened up at 9.00. And you wouldn't have known that anything rumbled through. <laughs> the only thing that was visible was back to the left of 11. There was a big pine tree that had been blown over. Mm. That had been moved to a place where unless you were looking, you wouldn't have seen it. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and the folks there, the, the, the maintenance staff, the superintendents, they are wizards. And it's amazing what they, they do around those place, that place. Mm. I don't want to get, get into any picks at the Masters yet. Hopefully, uh, this went well for all of us. And uh, we'll, we'll revisit prior to the Masters. Sounds good. Uh, so we do have an ending question. We, we do like to ask uh, our first timers and it is drink related. So mm-hmm. are you a G and T guy or a V and T guy? Oof. I'll drink G and T and I'll drink vodka and soda. Mm. Okay. Fair enough. Nice. nice. It's, uh, again, re- remember my preface, the whole thing with my dad belly. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, oh, trying yeah. to enjoy, I'm trying to avoid the tea as much as possible. <laughs> gotcha. Nice. <laughs> good, if you go to South Africa, a gin and tonic is one of the great um, safari drinks oh. because the quinine in the tonic will keep mosquitoes away from you. Oh, really? Yeah, there's something about it. So oh. all the colonials, when they moved north, and if you watched movies like Out of Africa and these sorts of things, yep. sundowners in Africa – as a, as a gin and tonic. Oh, that's perfect. Wow. Awesome. We're, hey, uh, Mark, before we let you go, what, uh, what's your favorite wine? Is, is South Africa your favorite wine region? I know you're a big wine guy. 
No, this is this is the I, second hour. We're going to talk now about one. <laughs> if, if, if South Africans listening to this, they're going to disown me, right? Okay. But, but I'm very much into Californian wines right now. But I'll drink anything going. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm yeah. not superstitious, but 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 I but but I, I love California wines. I think they're putting out some fantastic stuff there. I think it's well priced. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it rivals anything in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, having some fancy Bordeaux or having a nice South African wine, yeah, it's always a treat. But but right now we we we're living on Californians here in my house. There you go. We were um, we were talking about Napa last week because they were there. And we're like, man, we'd love to be up there at that event. That'd be so much fun. Well, I tell you what, I'm I, I'm I'm interested to see how those fires and all that ash around the place because mm-hmm. colleagues of mine sent pictures. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see if and how or how and then if this influences this this harvest of grapes and yeah. what the wine will turn out like. So it's it's going to be interesting times coming up. Yeah. We had a blender on, uh, I don't know if Marianne Eves, uh, she used to work at Castle and Key and she was a brown foreman. Anyway, uh, she's a, a, a whiskey gal uh, or mm-hmm. bourbon and she's kind of doing her own thing now. So she's freelancing and she's working with some of the um, uh, vineyards out there. And actually, the sm- because of the smoke, uh, I'm going to use the word, it tainted some of the grapes. So oh, they're, really? they're, yeah, so they're taking those grapes and she's making, uh, you know, brandies and, uh, you know, some different liqueurs with the smoked grapes because you know, instead of trashing them, I mean, what it, you know, you can't Nece- give. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how necessity, that turns out. Necessity is the mother of invention, isn't it? it yeah. Exactly. Don't you love the human race? We'll find yeah. where. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. Um, well, Mark, thanks so much for coming on, man. Uh, I've, en- I've enjoyed it. Uh, I'll make sure uh, you got a drink the next time. That way uh, we're not rushing off this thing. But uh, I'm, 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 I'm interested, Carl, in your product placement in the front there. That's stone what? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, it is, uh, so it, it's stone smoked porter. It's, uh, it's a San Diego brewery. Uh, so yeah, usually uh, we, uh, we have a drink every time we record, and I'm always doing something different, uh, just given the uh, – Given the uh, uh, the time of day, I thought I'd go with a uh, a breakfast stout. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's it's like watching the open, man. I mean, you get wine first thing in the morning, you know. So hey, let's uh, <laughs> let's let's Ed, if we do another one of these things in the near future, please let's do this at like uh, wine time for me. Oh, perfect. Uh, oh yeah, e- e- easy enough, sir. Uh, you I'll, might I'll, get you, you might get different answers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking forward to it, Mark. Hey, thanks so much for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, You're welcome, guys. It was my pleasure. All right, yeah, thanks. Cheers. 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 Cheers.